a, a six-year-old boy um, who has just gone to grade one. Um, any other parents here who have kids that have just gone to grade one or recently in the last couple of years? We're praying, I'm st we're standing in faith together. I think it's more traumatic for the parents than it is for the actual kids. Um, I found that I'm now stressed about homework again. I don't know how we came full circle, but all of a sudden it's like grade one homework. And I'm like, boy, have, have we done our homework? It's like, I've just taken ownership. I'm sitting with him every day doing his little drawings. I'm like, no, boy, when you do the B, it's gotta go all the way around. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm one of those parents and, uh, and it can be super stressful actually being in grade one. And he just seems very chilled about it all. Um, but I'm always trying to instill certain values within my kids. I'm sure that as parents, you all do the same. Um, we're always trying to teach them about what really matters in life, what's really valuable in life, the things that are very important. And so I take these teaching moments. And if you know me, I do this with everybody, not just my kids. If something happens, I'm like, well, let's sit down and talk about what just happened. And let's find out what we can learn from this situation. So I'm always doing that with my boys. We're always driving in the car, and, and if they say something or they ask questions or something happens, I normally like to sit them down and just take a moment to really build culture. I want to have a certain culture within my family and within my boys and stuff that we believe and that we cherish and that we value. And one of the biggest ones that's really difficult to kind of get across because we're so bound up as people in our own selfishness and our own needs um, is, is generosity. So I'm often trying to teach my boys about generosity. If you have three boys that are only two years apart because I've got twin four-year-olds as well. So I've got a six-year-old and twin four-year-olds. Let me tell you, there are some fights in my house, right? There is some conflict at times, um, especially when it comes to possessions. And so I'm always trying to teach them about sharing and about giving and about being selfless and about, about giving certain things away, even though they're important to you in order to bless others. And so recently, one of my boy's friends visited the house. He lives in the complex and uh, he visited the house, and as he was leaving, Eli went and fetched one of his toys and gave it to this boy and said he could keep it. Here's a toy, you can keep it, you can have it. And so his friend left, and I turned around and I said to him, boy, that's, that's really nice what you did. I'm so glad that you know, you're giving and you're sharing, but you don't have to give all of your toys away. I just wanna let you know, you don't have to <laughs> give them all away. And um, he looked at me and he said, it's okay, Dad. Um, if I need more toys, I'll just ask you, right? So I just give it, everybody just come, you can just fetch. They do that with the food as well. So we have like, that my kids organize their own pool parties. I'm not joking, this is real. When I get home, there's like 20 kids in the pool and no food left in the pantry. Um, I actually heard Eli the other day um, announcing to them, they were all upstairs in the one room and Eli said, who wants food? And um, you know, so, I've, you know, the generosity message is getting across, it seems. But the reason why Eli is so free with his, with his giving is because he knows what his source is, and he knows that if he needs more, he can just ask Dad, right? Dad will definitely always get him some more. And I want to talk a little bit about that this morning, about how there is something powerful about knowing your source. There is something powerful about, there, there's a fearlessness and, and, and a sense of security that comes from knowing that you are not your own source, that you're not the source of your own goodness, you're not the source of your own righteousness, you're not the source of, of your own ability or your own provision in life. So many of us worship our salaries as our savior. We worship our salaries as our savior, our, our careers um, as our creator, instead of trusting in God beyond those things. And so... There's something so powerful about knowing our source, knowing from where our help comes from. As David says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. He understands that when he is in need, he can look up. When he is in need, he can look up. When he needs provision, he can look to. And he can look to the Father. He can look to the Creator. I love the fact that in this world, uh, this world can really put you at risk. Um, I remember the first time I got a letter of demand. You know, if you haven't paid a bill, sometimes it's like 68 rand and 32 cents, but they will hand you over for that 68 rand and 32 cents. This is a, a cutthroat world that we live in. And I remember one time not having paid my levy in the complex. I just moved in and I was away on holiday over December. And in January, I got this, this letter saying that I was gonna be handed over and it was so harsh. And I remember how I was only in my early 20s. I remember how it affected me emotionally. And I replied to the lady and I said, you haven't even welcomed me into this complex. I've only like been here for seven days and I'm already getting letters of demand. Where is the humanity, people? You know, just, just feeling like we live in such a cutthroat world. 
and having to deal with all of that emotionally as part of growing up. Um, but I am so glad that in this life, uh, we're not like orphans. That in this life, Jesus actually said to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will be with you. That we're not exposed, that we're not just at risk, that we're not just facing the elements out there, but that we have a faithful and a loving God and Father who declares himself as our provider. We didn't ask him to declare himself. Before we could even ask, he said, I will provide for you. I will look after you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you. I will be there for you. Um, all of your needs will be supplied through the riches that are in Christ Jesus. And so God declares himself as our provider and wants us to see him that way, believe in him that way. And so we've been doing the series called Consider Jesus. Um, and, and as we've been looking at the first couple of chapters in the book of Hebrews, um, we've already discovered that God showed this kind of provision. He spoke his own heart for all of us through the person of Jesus. In previous times, God spoke in many different ways. He had prophets and, and people that he spoke through, but in, this latter, in these latter times, he has spoken through his son Jesus, and he has said everything that he has wanted to say through Jesus. And he declared that when there is need, he will provide. That's why he sent Jesus. He declared that wherever there is lack, he will offer supply. Wherever there is sin, he will give his grace. And we see that he spoke through Jesus. He made his love and his faithfulness and his heart known. And what God declared ultimately is that he is for us. Do you know this morning that God is for you? Do you know this morning that regardless of what you have done, regardless of what your background looks like, regardless of what mistakes you've made, regardless of what, what guilt you carry around in your own heart, regardless of what you feel your imperfections may be, God remains powerfully and consistently and eternally for you. He's for you this morning. We serve a God. That's, that's great news. It's great news. God could have been anybody, but, in, but he is love and he is grace and he is mercy to all of us. And he is for us. Uh, this past week, um, the great evangelist, Billy Graham, who preached the gospel all over the world on every continent and to people in every corner of the earth and saw uh, millions of people come to know Jesus and saw millions of decisions. This, this great uh, uh, um, evangelist and a great hero of our faith and I wanted to honor him this morning as he passed away at the age of 99. I feel like that is a great age to go at 99. Who wants to be 100, you know? Um, but 99 is a good age. Um, and he said this, he said, God proved his love on the cross. When Christ hung and bled and died, it was God saying to the world, I love you. It was God saying to the world, I love you. God is for you this morning. He remains for you. It's a better message than any message we've ever heard. It's a better message that's ever gone out. Wherever sound has vibrated in the eardrums of people across history, there has never been a greater message than this one, that God is for you that Jesus has done all in order to provide for you, that he is faithful and that he is true. And this is a message more dependable. Not only is it a better message, but it's more dependable than any message that we've ever heard. Because it was delivered to us, not secondhand, not by an angel, not by a messenger, not by some prophet, but by God himself in the flesh in the form of Jesus. And so this is the message that we put our full trust in, our, our full weight. The Bible says this amazing thing. It says, don't lean on your own understanding. And there's a place in, in scripture that actually refers to the leaning on a reed. And if you could just imagine a reed at the, like standing up next to the river and, and trying to lean on that reed, right? That's what it's like leaning on your own understanding. You're leaning on something that's gonna bend and it's gonna break under the weight that you're placing on it. That's what happens when we lean on our own understanding. But the Bible says don't do that, rather trust in the Lord. Put your full weight, your full weight, the weight of your life, the weight of your concerns, the weight of your thoughts, the weight of your anxiety, the weight of, 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 your, of the practicalities of your life, the weight of your salvation, the weight of your sin, the weight of everything you feel, put it on Jesus. Lean on him. Lean on him. And not on your own strength. Not on your own understanding. Put your full weight on him. And this is a dependable message that was brought and embodied and enacted by Jesus as God in the flesh. And so we've looked at that and we've also looked at how putting your faith in Jesus is better than putting your faith in any religious law 
or philosophy or human sacrifice. You know, that, that we're not pagan uh, uh, religious people like in the old days where they would put their faith in human sacrifices. We put our faith in a God who enacts and, and, and acts on our behalf by grace. And so we're not here at Anchor Church to be religious. We're here, if anything, to end your religion. Jesus and his grace and his gospel is the declaration of the end of any form of human system and human structure in order to be made right with God. That's not what we're doing. That's not what we've come to. That's not what our faith is about. We're not here trying to achieve salvation. This is a better message than that. And it has a better conclusion. It, it, it has a, a, a better result. The result is instead of self-righteousness, true righteousness which means to be truly right with God. That's what has happened because of what Jesus has done. So this morning, the conclusion of the message of the gospel is that you are forgiven already. It's already done. The stuff, the guilt that you're carrying around, the condemnation that you feel, let it go. It's already been dealt with on the cross. You are forgiven. You have been redeemed. You are accepted in the beloved. You belong here in this family. You are right with God because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. And he did that as a gift, not something that you had to earn. And therefore, like Eli saying, it's okay, dad, I can just ask you when I need something, I can ask you this morning, God is our source. He has already provided everything that we need and he is rich in supply. He gives us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. And so we moved on from that and, and we looked last week at how he is, because of that, because he has is, he is made right between us and God, he is also our rest. We consider Jesus as our rest. Our, we, we, instead of running around and striving and being religious and, and churning the butter trying to get good enough, instead we rest because Jesus has already done the work. When you put your faith in Jesus, you rest in Jesus. And resting in Jesus is what it means to have your faith in Jesus. That's why Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat while the storm raged. And they all thought they were gonna die and he woke up and he said, but don't you have faith? Don't you believe in this God that you serve? Don't you believe in his love for you, that he cares for you? If you did, you would sleep like a baby right through the storm because he is our rest. And so he is the source of our peace. He is the source of our serenity. He is the source of our security, no matter what happens. And, and I believe this, and I tell myself this, and I often tell the team this before church, no matter what happens, we win. No matter what happens today, we win. No matter what happens in this week, we win. No matter what setbacks we face, we win. No matter how hard the challenge, we keep winning. We cannot lose because we have somebody within us. We have the Spirit of God within us that is greater. And if God is for us, who or what can be against us? What can destroy us? We cannot be destroyed. We cannot be overcome. We cannot be dismayed because we're upheld not by our own strength, but by his. He's our strength and our provider and our source. Isaiah 41 verse 20, I'm gonna kick it off in Isaiah today, but Isaiah 41 verse 20 says, fear not. This is God speaking directly to us through the prophet Isaiah and he says, don't be afraid. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. At the right hand of the Father, Jesus sat down as the righteousness of God. He has made us the righteousness of God. That's why we're seated with him in heavenly places. And God upholds us because of what Jesus has done for us. We can now be upheld. There's nothing keeping us from the provision of God anymore. So he says, church, do not be afraid anymore. We carry fear too much. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Do not uh, be in anxiety and, and, and worry. And Take your eyes off of your lack. Take your eyes off of your circumstance because I will strengthen you and help you and uphold you. Isn't that good news this morning? That, that we're now, we're now that Paul said this, when I am weak, he is strong. In fact, I'll boast in my weakness because it means the weaker I am, the more opportunity there is for God to be strong. So we're not here trying to pretend like we're strong people. We're flawed and weak people. I am as well. But that's why I'm strong because I can rely on a strength that is beyond me for life. 
And so today we go into Hebrews 4 and 5, um, which essentially says that if we have entered God's rest and, 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 and we have put our faith in what Jesus has done for us, then we can live our lives with this vital connection to God, this vital connection that we have to the Holy Spirit and to the throne room of God, that, that we have this genuine and present and dependable and consistent help in time of need. And so the author of Hebrews here in Hebrews 4 and 5 is encouraging us to consider Jesus in your time of need. Consider Jesus. That's the title of the message I want to share with you this morning. Consider Jesus in your time of need. When you face need, when you have lack, when you, when you have a challenge in your life, consider Jesus. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, I'm going to read it, then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to just look at the individual verses. But Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says the following. It says, since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession which means let's hold fast to our faith in him. Let's not let go of our confidence in Jesus and what he has done. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, is in, every, who, ha, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Consider Jesus in your time of need. Let's go ahead and pray together this morning. Father, we just thank you that right now we can, we can open up our hearts, we can put aside our, our resistance in our minds and in our souls, Lord God, and we can just surrender to your voice this morning. We thank you, God, that through your spirit you speak to us, you encourage us, you raise up something within our spirits, Lord God, that is beyond the natural. We thank you, God, that we can trust you in a supernatural way this morning and believe in you for everything that we could possibly need. God, we run into your throne room. We stand before you. We know that you are a God of grace who has opened the way for us because of Jesus. And so today, we are before you, God, admitting our need and receiving your provision. We thank you, God, that you speak to each of our hearts where we struggle with this, where we struggle to receive. We thank you that you will give us faith this morning and revelation in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. So I love the Old Testament stories and, and all these things that happened in the Old Testament that is really projecting the truth of the future um, in the New Testament to us. They say that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. Within the Old Testament, you actually find the New Testament, but there were categories that God was setting up and building up to get us to a place where we would understand the New Testament. And once we have the New Testament, the Old Testament becomes revealed. So in the Old Testament, it's the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. You can only truly understand the Old Testament and the stories and everything that's in there when we understand the New Testament. And so I love being able to go back and connect these things. And one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is the showdown that happens um, between uh, the, 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 the prophet Elijah, this powerful prophet, this wild man who was hairy and, and ate locusts and lived in caves and, and, and spoke fire and, and brought the word of God and, and, uh, and, and declared the truth of God to Israel and to the surrounding nations in that area. And he has this major showdown with another uh, philosophy and another type of religion that, raised, that, that, was, uh, that arose in those days in that area where it was the, the worship of, of Baal. And there were different kinds of Baal. Baal is basically a Canaanite word for the word God. Um, and, uh, but most scholars believe that the specific Baal that they worshipped was Baal Shashem, which was the Baal that was worshipped at that time. And so there are hundreds of prophets of Baal, and you have this one lone prophet, uh, Jezebel, the queen at that time, had, had led a raid against the prophets of, of God. And, uh, and Elijah was, the, was one of the last ones alive. And so he's this one lone prophet going up against hundreds of prophets of Baal. And the people of Israel are kind of flip-flopping. They're going between worshiping God and worshiping Baal. And they're trying, they, they basically got one foot in each camp. And Elijah gets up and he says, this is enough of this. Today we're going to find out who the real God is. And so he lays down the gauntlet. He lays down a challenge. I, I'm, I'm hoping to God that once in my life I can do something like this. That just once in my life, I can get, okay, everybody get together. Let's see who the real God is. And um, Elijah does this, 
And so he puts the challenge to the, the prophets of Baal. He says, let's see who the real God is. And he invites them to go up onto Mount Carmel. And on that mountain, they set up two altars and they get sacrifices and they prepare the sacrifices and they lay them out on the altar, but there's no fire. And so the challenge is that you pray to your God and see if he will send down fire. Pray to Baal and let Baal send fire to consume the sacrifice that you've laid out for him. And then I'll pray to my God and we'll see which God is real. We'll see which God is true. And so the prophets of Baal go first. Elijah's like, he set this up so he gets to make the rules. He's like, you go first. You pray to your God and you see if your God will, will send the fire. And they begin to pray. And one of the reasons why I find this story so, so poignant and so relevant to us is that I think that it perfectly illustrates the difference between religion and belief in the gospel. The difference between, between making something happen and trusting in God who has already made it happen. This is the problem that we have as Christians and it reveals actually, we wanna judge the prophets of Baal, but it reveals actually how religious we sometimes are as Christians. That we actually end up doing the same thing that the prophets of Baal did in order to get God to answer them, their God um, to answer them. They meet on the mountaintop, they put the altars out, they cut up the sacrifice, they put it on the altar, and then the prophets of Baal begin to pray. And they pray, and they pray, and they pray, and they're waiting for the fire, and the fire's not coming. So they pray louder, and they cry out louder, and they start running around, and they start, they start doing whatever they think they can do. And they do that from morning until noon, until Elijah, who seems to be a hell of a guy, starts mocking them. And this is actually in the Bible, and, I, and it just makes me fall in love with Elijah. Uh, he just says this, he says, at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. This is in the Bible. He's like, maybe he's taking a wee right now, guys. You just, need to, you just need to shout out a little bit louder. Maybe he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And so he begins to mock them because their God isn't answering. And it says, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. So in an effort to get this God who isn't answering to actually answer them, they begin to actually sacrifice themselves and cut themselves and draw blood from their own skin, hoping that their sacrifice will produce an answer. Does that not sound like many Christians today? Oh, where's the fire, God? Where's the answer? No, maybe if I go on my knees until my knees hurt and bleed, and maybe if I do this for hours on end, and maybe if I sacrifice, and maybe if I do all of this, maybe if I've given everything and, and fasted and prayed and hurt myself and abandoned these things and, and walked in this way, maybe then I can get an answer. What makes us different than the, than the prophets of Baal in wanting an answer from God? That's what religion does. That's what religion does. You know why? Because we know that we've got sin. We know that we've fallen short. And so in an effort to receive from God, we believe that we have to make up for those things before he can answer us. This is what religion is. It's an attempt. Every religion, including religious Christianity, is just a knowledge that there is a gap between God and I and an attempt to create steps that will make up the distance, that will reunite me with God. It's like a ladder, like the people in, in, in the time of, of the, the Tower of Babel said, let us build a tower high enough by our human effort to reach into the sky so that we will be on the same level of God. Let's create something that connects us with God, a human system. But the Bible says it doesn't matter how hard we try in Romans 3, all of us fall short of the glory. We kid ourselves if we think that we can build a system that would make us right with God, that by human effort we can get there. But that's what religion does. It says, let us do what we can to get there. And so when we are in need, we start putting ourselves on the altar. When we are in need, we begin to cut ourselves and hurt ourselves in order for God to answer how many of you have done this? I know that so many times I've prayed prayers that when something like this where I said, God, if you would do this for me, I promise you. Come on, anybody ever done that before? 
God, God, I need this so bad. God, I need this job. I need this interview. I need this breakthrough. I need this contract. I need this provision. I need this healing. Um, I need this relationship. I need this boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife. God, I promise you, I promise you, God, if you would provide for me in this area, what I will do is I will honor you every day, God. I will go to church every Sunday, God. God, I will be in the front row every Sunday, hands raised, singing out, doing what I need to do. Uh, I, I, will, I will give you my everything, God, if you will just do this for me. We're doing what the prophets of Baal did. We're cutting ourselves, thinking that it is our sacrifice that brings God's answer. It's religious, and it's a lack of faith. That's what religion does. It's the enemy of faith because it gives us stuff to do rather than a savior to believe in. Rather than a savior to believe in. So when it comes to Believing in God and and making requests of God or approaching God for an answer, there's a trap that many of us fall into. There's a trap that many of us fall into as imperfect people. We get trapped between two things. On the one hand, we need help. That's the, the one side of this thing, that we all need help. Come on, how many of you can admit this morning that we need help? That we, we often confused, we often lack direction, we often don't know what to do, we, we often struggle, we often get addicted to things or struggle with, with thoughts or struggle with, with different relationships, whatever it might be. We, we get stuck in many different ways and we need help. We have weaknesses and limitations of all kinds. But on the other hand, where we get stuck is that we have sins. So not only do we have needs and weaknesses, but we also have sin. We've also all made mistakes and done things wrong, sometimes willfully sinned. And so at the bottom of our hearts, we know that we don't deserve the help that we need. We don't deserve the help. So we feel stuck. What do I do? Because I need help, but I don't deserve help. I don't deserve to be helped. Many times the need that I have arises directly out of my sinfulness. And so again, on many occasions, I have prayed for something that I needed and then ended my prayer with something along the lines of, God, I know that you'd like to do this for me, but you probably can't because I haven't done enough. Can we just be real in church this morning that we so often pray and then directly disqualify ourselves directly after praying because we don't think that we deserve the answer? That's religious. It's a lack of faith. It's not considering Jesus in your time of need. It's considering yourself in your time of need, which is the wrong way to do it. But that's the trap. We feel that we need to make up for our sins before we can receive from God. And that's why we make the promises because it's like doing a lay-by. It's like putting down a deposit. It's like, oh God, you know, I know I haven't done enough, but if I promise that in the future I will do enough, can you do it for me in advance and then I'll pay you back later? This is what we do. We go into debt in our own hearts and minds. And I prayed these prayers up until the point where God began to reveal the gospel to me. What it is that Jesus has done for me. What it is that, that, that Jesus secured for me on the cross. When, when my heart opened to the understanding that God is not faithful to me because I am faithful to him. But I can only be faithful to him because he has first been faithful to me. There's something that changed. And all of a sudden, my faith was no longer in me, but it was genuinely in Jesus. Genuinely in Jesus. Knowing that I didn't measure up, I could never measure up, I couldn't earn it, I couldn't do enough to make up for my sins, but that he did everything for me. And this is simply what Elijah does. In 1 Kings 18 verse 37, it's Elijah's turn to pray. And he just simply says this, he says, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is our God. The Lord, he is God. I love the fact that the fire doesn't just come down. And you know, when when you ask of God, he doesn't just come and go, okay, I'll burn up the meat and just leave the stones. Thanks for the offering, guys. I'm out, you know. When God comes down, he comes down all the way. He brings his full power, his full provision, his full grace. That's why it says it doesn't matter how much sin abounds in your life, grace abounds so much more. 
It's an overpayment for your sin. He doesn't just come down and consume the meat, the sacrifice. He consumes the stones that the sacrifice was laid on. He consumes the dust that lay between the stones. Can you think of the fire just burns dust away? And they had, and, and Elijah for effect, because Elijah seems to have had a flair for the dramatic, he asked them before he prayed to pour water over everything, just wet everything just to make doubly sure. And even the water that then gathered in the trench around the altar was, was taken away by this fire. God comes as a consuming fire. It tells us that our God is a consuming fire. He has more provision than what your lack could ever present. There's no challenge to the provision of God. I remember one day um, speaking to a man who, um, who, who had, was a man of great faith. I just, we, we all recognized him as a man of great faith. And um, at that time, um, I needed a house. I had moved into this area and um, I needed a house for my family and I couldn't afford the prices in this area. And I was driving from far away and I said to him, I, you know, I need a home and I'm praying if you can pray with me. And he just, he kept his hands in his pocket. He just kind of shrugged and he was like, it's a small thing for God. It's amazing how we limit God in our minds, isn't it? It's, like, it's easy. Like one of my friends says, it's like tickling a baby's toes. I ask him to do impossible things for me and he's like, oh, it's like tickling a baby's toes. But we seem to think that God, God can do little miracles for, me, for you, but God can't provide a house, could he? I mean, or, or, or a job or, 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 or something miraculous healing in my life. I mean, God can't do that. He'll do the little things fine, but we limit God in our own hearts and minds. When God comes down, he doesn't just take the meat. He consumes everything. That's the power of God that we get to trust in, that we get to call upon. And so Elijah called on God and God answered without any human sacrifice. Notice that Elijah did not cut himself. Elijah didn't wail and moan. Elijah didn't run around for three hours. That's why Jesus even says, when you pray, don't be like the heathens who think that they will be heard because of their many words. Same thing. If I pray once and I ask God for what I need, no, that's not enough sacrifice. Surely he cannot answer that. What I need to do is I need to spend hours going, please, Jesus, please, Jesus, please, Jesus, please, Jesus, do this for me. Jesus, I need to ask you, Jesus, please do this for me. He says, you were heard before you even asked. You were heard before you even asked. Your Father in heaven knows what you need. And he answers. So run to him in your time of need. Don't run away from him. Don't think that you will be heard because of your many words. And this is not the last time that God would send an answer from heaven in this time of Elijah. God would answer us from heaven um, in the days to come when our greatest need, the greatest need that any of us have ever had was the need for salvation. And what God did when our greatest need was salvation, before we even knew that we had the need or needed the Savior, he sent Jesus. It says in Romans 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. That's how God demonstrates his love. You guys are still sinners. You don't even care about the fact that you need a savior, but I'm gonna send Jesus to die for you anyways. And so Hebrews 4.14 says, since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. When we needed salvation, he sent Jesus, not just through the heavens down to us, but when Jesus had done all to secure our, our salvation, he, the Bible says he uh, ascended and he ascended through the heavens right into the most holy place, right into the throne room of God, where in heaven he sits at the right hand of God in all authority. That's the God that we serve. So let's hold fast to our confession in who Jesus is. I remember uh, last year, April, I went to New York and um, I had been to New York before, but I'd never taken a walk across the Brooklyn Bridge. And, um, and the more I read up on the Brooklyn Bridge and the, the you know, there's this amazing story behind it and how it was built and the engineering that went into it, um, people were absolutely convinced that it was gonna collapse into the sea. By the time it, it, they started building, building it in 1869, it took them 14 years to complete. And by the time they completed it in 1883, they, it was the longest suspension bridge in the world by over 50%. 
Nothing had ever been built that long or, or spanning a river that wide as it spanned across the East River. And there's this amazing story about how the original architect, there was so much uh, tragedy and calamity in trying to get that, that bridge built. The original architect was on site and his foot got crushed between a boat and one of the pylons and um, he had to have some of his toes amputated and that got infected and so he died. But before he died, he handed the project over to his son and his son was, uh, I think, scuba diving as they were drilling into the, the ground below the river and came up and got nitrogen bubbles uh, in his bloodstream, which is known as the bends, and uh, he got that, and then um, he was incredibly sick, and so he completed the construction by sitting in an apartment looking through the window and making adjustments from up in the window. They didn't even have walkie-talkies, so uh, he would send, apparently he sent his wife down, uh, just go and tell them they've got to change this, you know, he'd like redesign the whole thing. It took 14 years for them to build this bridge, and today it still stands. And I tell you, I've walked across that bridge. That bridge is as solid as ever. Nothing is going to move that bridge. But today, we know it as the Brooklyn Bridge. Originally, however, it was called the New York and Brooklyn Bridge. They've just shortened it over time. But it was known as the New York and Brooklyn Bridge. And this is the reason why. Because a bridge has to connect two places. I've got a, a picture up there um, of the Brooklyn Bridge that we just can go ahead and, and, and put up. But a bridge has to connect Two places, one side and the other. And when it speaks about Jesus in Hebrews 4.14, it speaks about Jesus as our high priest. And this is not a term that we're familiar with. We don't really have priests. And, and even if we did have priests here at Anchor Church, um, you know, we, it would be different to what the role of a high priest would be. But the idea of a high priest was to be a bridge between God and man, to represent from both sides, to represent to man God's holy standard and requirement, and then re represent to God man's desire for forgiveness and need for atonement. And so the high priest took up a, 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 an intermediary role or a mediator type of role where he had to represent both God and man and create a bridge between the two. And so just like the, 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 the Brooklyn Bridge starts off in Brooklyn at an, in an area called Dumbo and it then goes across to lower Manhattan, it has to touch and be grounded on both sides in order to bridge the East River. And in that same way, when it talks about Jesus as our great high priest, it basically says that Jesus is the one that connects man back to God, that he was both God and man. First of all, that Jesus was God, that he wasn't just a messenger, that he wasn't just a prophet, that he wasn't just a religious man, but he was God himself, fully God in the flesh. And then that puts him, sets him apart from every other kind of high priest that Israel ever had because they were all human. They weren't God. And so it says when they were making sacrifices for the people, it says this in the beginning of Hebrews 5, when they were making sacrifices for the people, they also at the same time had to make sacrifices for themselves because they had also sinned. So there was no perfect high priest that could breathe. There was no perfect bridge. No perfect bridge. I remember uh, when I was on holiday once, we drove on this dusty road out to a little town that's in the middle of the Cape somewhere. And at one point you get to a river and there's no bridge to cross the river. So there's a, a pond, but it's driven by manpower. Literally, there's chains that go across and cars would drive onto the little, the little uh, uh, pond that would stand there that would float and you'd park your car on it. And then there were three or four guys that were walking with chains that were attached to their bodies and they would swing the chain around the other chain and walk. And as they walked, it would push the bridge forward and then they would undo the chain and go back to the front and swing it like that and that's how they got your car across the bridge that is the difference between what we had in the old testament as a high priest that under his own power had to try to get you across the river and what we have in jesus which is a bridge that is solidified across and touches both sides he was fully god but he was also fully man he was truly human like us jesus was human he was like us in every respect. He was tempted on every point. There is nothing that you have gone through that Jesus didn't go through. Every bit of rejection, every bit of heartache, every bit of pain, every bit of sorrow, every bit of temptation that you have faced, Jesus faced as well. The only differentiating factor is that he was without sin. He didn't 
succumb to that temptation. But he was tempted on every single point. He was fully God and fully human. Isaiah 53 tells us that he was a man acquainted with grief, familiar with sorrow, one as from whom men hid their faces. There was nothing stately that you would look upon him. He knew rejection, just like we do. And so that's why Jesus is the great high priest, and that is why he is sympathetic to us. When you go through difficulty, when you are in need, he understands, because he was in need himself. Even on the cross, he cried out, I thirst, I'm thirsty. His humanity on display. So Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, is in every, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted, he went through pain. I remember hearing, um, or visiting a church in Seattle, a well-known church called the City Church. It's now being called Church Home. And there was a great pastor who started that church, Pastor Wendell and Ginny Smith. Um, I was blessed enough and fortunate enough to, um, uh, to, to sit down and have a dinner with them at one point. And they told me the whole story of, of how they started the church and the faith journey that they had been on and how amazing it was. But Pastor Wendell, a couple of years ago, um, became sick with cancer and uh, fought a brave fight against cancer. And his son Judah um, had been coming through the ranks, had been um, teaching and had been uh, serving as the youth pastor. And before his death, he handed the church over uh, to his son. And just a couple of months after his son Judah Smith took over the church, I was able to visit that church for about three weeks and sit in on their staff meetings and just be a part of the team um, to learn for a couple of weeks at that time. And, and one of the amazing things about the story of Judah Smith and, and how he became the lead pastor of the church that many people don't know is that when he started out as uh, working in the church, when he was 18, 19 years old, he didn't go from being, he, he didn't just become the lead pastor because he was the pastor's son. His dad said to him that if you want to be leading in this church one day, then you're going to start off as the janitor. And so Judah Smith started working at the city church in, in Kirkland, Seattle by cleaning the toilets by putting up the chairs, by vacuuming the auditorium, by dusting the windows and, and, and making sure that everything was clean for everybody else. He's the pastor's son, but he started at the bottom. And now he's here. I just had to throw that in there. But, but he went through every single, eventually he moved into another position. Eventually he became the youth pastor. Eventually he graduated from that and became the lead pastor of the city church where he's doing a great job today. But this is ultimately what the scripture is telling us about Jesus, that he didn't just go and become our Lord and our Savior simply because he was God's son. He actually walked a journey of experiencing every level of humanity, every temptation, every hardship, every problem, every pain, to qualify him to sit in that seat. He had to be the bridge, and he couldn't be the bridge if he hadn't experienced true humanity. If one side of that bridge just stopped off in the ocean, we couldn't get across. And so Jesus became truly human. Think about it. He was born as a baby. He needed his nappy changed. He needed his mom to give him milk. He fell and scuffed his knee. He had friends mock him as a teenager. He, he suffered hardship and, and heartache and temptation. He grew up. And as we go into Hebrews 5, Hebrews 5, 7 and 10 says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Imagine Jesus, he's the son of God, but he's praying and he's asking God with loud cries and tears. Have you ever thought about Jesus in that way? We always think about Jesus as walking around, his life is just great, everything's great, everybody loves him, he's the son of God, come on, he's got a mate. But it says that he cried out with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He put himself completely at the mercy of his father. And he was heard because of his reverence, because of his faith in who God is. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, when he had done all of that, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is an eternal high priesthood. It's not just an earthly high priesthood. So isn't it amazing that in order to bridge the divide, Jesus started over here in heaven, 
but to be the perfect mediator of this new covenant, he was born as a baby on this side, one brick in the bridge. And over time, his steps of obedience through his hardships, through the temptations, through the humanity, through the suffering, through all that he was suffered, he learned obedience and he bridged the divide and he completed the work. Just like that Brooklyn Bridge was completed in 1883 and there was fireworks and there were, there were people all over and on that first day, thousands of people crossed the bridge. In the same way, Jesus on the cross completed the bridge between God and man and united us forever with our Father. And now he is the high priest. He eternally remains that bridge. He passed through the heavens and sits at the right hand of God. In verse five of, of Hebrews five, it says today, it says this, it says, you are my son, today I have forgotten you. Romans 8.34 therefore says, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and he is also interceding for us. So Jesus took our humanity, the experience of everything we go through, and he took it into the throne room of God, and now he sits at God's right hand, and he prays for us, he intercedes for us, he represents us like a true high priest, a true bridge. How does that impact your life? Your needs, your time of help, the things that you desire, the things that, that you are in need of, Jesus holds them before God, praying for you right in his throne room. We, we, you know how people pray and they say, oh, I feel like my, my, my prayers are, 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 are just hitting the ceiling. They're not getting to God. Guess what? They were at God before you even started praying because Jesus was holding them in God's presence. Whatever it is that you need, he is the bridge. He is the, the, the perfect bridge, the eternal mediator between humanity, our lack, and God's supply. And so we all have an open road. We all have an open channel to the presence of God and to the supply of God. No matter what we need, there is nothing that keeps you from God's throne. Nothing that keeps you. My grandfather was a preacher and, um, and preached in the AFM church all of his life um, up until the two weeks. He, he, he stepped down from the pulpit two weeks before he died. And I remember for me, walking into church, that wasn't you know, the, the, the lead pastor or the senior pastor or the district chairman of the AFM or, the, or whatever it may be. He, that was just Opa. And so on one occasion, I came into church and my grandfather was preaching and he would preach up a storm and I just ran into church and right in the middle of church with all the people sitting there, I ran right down the aisle screaming, Opa, wanting to come for a hug because it's my, it's my grandfather. There's nothing that keeps me from him. And that's what the scripture is saying. We've got a clear aisle here because that's not just God in the heavens, that's our father. That's our father. And we are welcome in that throne room. That's why Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then with confidence, with confidence, let us then, that's a big therefore, because of the fact that Jesus has bridged the divide, let us with confidence, not worry, not lack, not trapped between our sin and our need, but knowing that we've forgiven, forgiven let us boldly approach the throne of grace. The throne of grace. It's not a throne of religion. It's not a throne of sacrifice. It's not a throne of works, but it's a throne of grace. What will we get there? That we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need, which literally means a well-timed help. That's what we get from the throne room. Many people, when they think about grace, they think about God forgiving you for your past. But grace is not just for your past, it's for your future, it's for your present. It's the power to live in the future and it's the provision for, or in the present and it's the provision for the future. We're not just made alive by it, we live by it every day. We have this fountain that we can constantly draw on. Whatever you need, there is grace for you. It doesn't go away, it doesn't stop flowing, you're never shut out from it. It's yours, it's a present help. Philippians 4.19 says, and my God, will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. What is your need? God has a rich supply to provide for you. And that is why over and over again, the Bible tells us not to look to our lack, not to be afraid, not to be anxious, not to be dismayed, but to look to him. 
My final scripture this morning, Philippians 4, verse six to seven. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Consider him in your time of need. And what will happen is because you know how faithful he is, peace will flood your heart. And I love that. It says the peace of God will guard my heart and my mind. If you've ever seen bouncers at a club or at, at, at a restaurant or protecting some celeb, if you've ever looked at bouncers or bodyguards, I imagine these two really, really big bodyguards standing in front of my heart. Just because I know who my God is and I know that I'm right with him and I know what the gospel is and what Jesus has done. And every time fear and doubt and anxiety wants to come into my heart, it's like the peace of God just, just knocks that, the, those people over. Just knocks that fear, just knocks that anxiety. You're not gonna get in here. The peace of God God's this heart. That's what happens when we put our trust, when we, when we consider Jesus. It eradicates fear from your life and it puts God's peace in control. We've often heard that the answer to fear is faith. But I wanna say it's not just faith because some people fear that they don't have enough faith and so their faith becomes their fear. It's not just faith. It's not just the quality of your faith. It's who your faith is in, it's the, it's the object of your faith. So it's not just faith that battles fear. It's faith in the faithfulness and the love of God that overcomes fear. It's faith in his love that gives us security. Oh, sorry, I have one more scripture, but this really is the last one. <laughs> but listen how good this is. Romans 8 verse 32 says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. When we needed salvation, he gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Graciously give us all things. If God didn't withhold his own son when we needed salvation, why do we think that when we need a breakthrough in our finances or a, a door open in our career or restoration in a relationship or any other kind of need that we might have in this life, why do we think that God would withhold any good thing from us? If he gave his own son, why would he not give us all things graciously, more than enough, abundantly? God provides for us in every single area and he desperately wants us to trust him for all things. He is willing and he is able, and by faith, we are able to receive. So this morning, I wanna encourage you to consider Jesus in your time of need. Consider Jesus in your time of need. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray together this morning.